0: This talk was given by Patrick Yunnan Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. Can you hear me in back? Okay, good. So this is a poem by Izumi Ishikibu. Why did you vanish into empty sky? Even the fragile snow, when it falls, falls into this world. So, uh, good morning. My name is Yunin. I'm a, a lay student here, uh, in the order. And uh, so welcome, especially to those of you who are new. And then I just also want to, to briefly acknowledge, this is Lenape Hoking, the, uh, the ancestral land of the Lenape people. So I wanted to talk today about uh, grief and loss. Hojin-sensei spoke about this a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, by coincidence, I had planned to speak on the same thing. I knew that I was going to give a talk. But I figured it's a large subject, and uh, especially after two years of COVID. And it can accommodate everyone. It's like... uh, Uh, Vimalakirti's room in the Vimalakirti Sutra. There's a place for for everyone. And uh, just a caveat, I'm no authority on anyone's grief. (laughs) Not even my own. This is just a report back on my experience so far. So uh, Izumi Shikibu was, uh, she lived uh, in the latter part of the 10th century, early 11th century. She very well known as a poet in her time, and then she became known as one of the um, most recognized poets of the, the Heian period. She's considered one of the poetry immortals of that, that time. And this poem that she wrote was uh, shortly after the, uh, the death of her lover, Prince Atsumichi in 1007, so over a thousand years ago. And I imagine what, what she's referring to, um, why did you vanish into empty sky, is the, either the cremation of the body and the smoke rising up, or the, uh, the incense at the funeral. You know, I think the first response to loss is often a question. Why me? Why now? She asks, why did you vanish into empty sky? The kanji for empty sky is, uh, is um, uh, it's the Chinese uh, kong, ku uh, cool, in Japanese. It's, um, it's actually the same character that if you look at a Chinese translation of the Prashna Paramita literature, say the Heart Sutra, uh, the sky, the character that she's using is the same one that we use for uh, shunyata, emptiness. So when we chant this morning, form is emptiness, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Form is exactly emptiness, emptiness exactly form. That emptiness is what she's saying, empty sky. And I'm I'm pretty sure she was aware of this. Uh, she actually uh, um, was uh, dedicated herself to to Buddhism later in life. Yeah, you know, we, we all know grief as uh, as sentient beings. It's not even confined to the human realm, it seems. When it's strong, it can feel overwhelming, unbearable. You know, you can't even function properly. It's hard to eat or sleep. In the beginning instruction in Zazen, we give people guidance on how to work with strong emotions when these things come up. Is sooner or later they will. So we talk about anger, fear, desire, envy, depression, grief. You know, we tend to view these strong emotions as hindrances or obstacles to practice. They, they seem to get in the way of whatever uh, equanimity or tranquility we, we think we're seeking or that we, we associate with, with enlightenment, whatever that means. But the guidance that we give in beginning instruction is just to be present to the state, to your experience, to your body and mind, without indulging and without suppressing, to uh, make friends with it. And then eventually when it does pass, just to see that, and let it go, return to the practice of counting or whatever your practice is. The point is that we don't need to fix or uh, liberate difficult states of mind, These what we think of as negative emotions, difficult emotions. The reason we don't need to is because they're already liberated. That's their nature. We can't do anything about it. <laughs> All dharmas are forms of emptiness. And even on a a relative or or conditional level, um, conventional level, um, with steady loving awareness, these tangles just naturally loosen and dissolve. It's just like ice melting in the sun. And reflecting, you know, it's, it's a, it can be a bit tricky to speak about the inherent liberation of mind states. Um, it's not that it's not true. They are. That's their nature. But it's, it's easy to get attached to the idea of inherent liberation, or if you've perhaps experienced it, the memory of it, rather than the, the real deal. We, we settle very easily, it seems. It's especially tricky I think with grief or loss. You know, we tell ourselves things like, or other people say things like this too shall pass. Time heals all things. All those are those are true statements. Those things are true. And it's well-intentioned. And sometimes it helps. But when you're really in the thick of it, that's not your experience. You know, for someone who's in grief, there's just one thing, one experience. (sighs) In the Zen tradition, we have this image of a sort of disciplined, steady, emotionally flat practitioner, you know, a good Buddhist. As if you can't be uh, confused or Angry or apathetic or depressed as a practitioner. Discipline is good. It's, it's very helpful, but it's not an end in itself. The point of the practice isn't to be disciplined, you know, to, to cross all your T's and dot all your eyes. The practice is, the aim is liberation of self and other, liberation from suffering. So we shouldn't let discipline become a straitjacket. Sometimes the path to liberation is to allow yourself uh, to be humbled or devastated, to allow yourself to be a mess. Uh, Joan Halifax, who's a Zen teacher, she speaks of the, the terrible gift of grief. So we should acknowledge that. And then, when you're able, let go of even that. And return to the practice. So grief, grief in particular, is a is a very powerful gateway. I think, to practice. Dogen Zenji, who we've um, we chanted his, his name. He's the the founder of this lineage, the 13th century Japanese master. Um, he said that that his he first aroused the the, the desire to. Bodhicitta, the spirit that aspires for awakening, uh, when his mother died when he was seven, and he saw the incense rising on the, uh, on the altar at her funeral. Why did you vanish into empty sky? In a sense, that was his question, too. There's another well-known story of, uh, of a woman um, uh, Kisagotami. We we chanted her name this morning, actually, um, and she was a contemporary of the Buddha. Uh, she had a child, and her child became sick and died. And it said that she was uh, she was driven mad with grief, and she was wailing and, and begged the Buddha to to bring her child back to life, as if he had um, magical powers. And he said, I will, if you get a mustard seed from a house that hasn't known uh, death. And so she looked all around, and everyone was perfectly willing to give her a mustard seed, but no one had not known death. And so she got it. She began to practice. So, one way, and and, uh, I guess... I think a very good way to work with grief is to not turn away, but to to invite it in. Um, To really get close to it. In the the gateless barrier, Khan calls this uh, entering into the scars of the burnt out fields. And when you get close, it turns out that it's not just one thing. You know, there are many different kinds of, of grief and grieving, and even one grief takes many different shapes in a single person's experience at different times, at different stages in the, the process, the unfolding. And it's not all necessarily linear. In the, in the Mountains and River Sutra, Dogen says, when humans look at water, they see it only as flowing without rest. This flow takes many forms, and our way of seeing it is just a one-sided human view. Water flows over the earth. It flows across the sky. It flows up. It flows down. Water flows around bends and into deep abysses. It mounts up to form clouds. It descends to form pools. Water extends into flames. It extends into thought, reasoning, and discrimination. It extends into enlightenment in the Buddha nature. It is not the case simply that there is water in the world. Within the world of water, there is a world. You could think of this as if you just substitute grief, it works pretty well, or, or really <laughs> any, any phenomena, but let's stick with grief. A, and so, so mourning a, a loss, a death, of someone that we love is probably the most obvious form of grief. But, but there are many others. You know, there are, there are large griefs, small griefs, griefs that are neither large nor small, melodramatic grief, quiet grief, angry grief, sad grief, numb grief, grief for animals, for hopes and dreams that never worked out, for the end of a relationship, grief at the at the destruction of the natural world, grief at injustice that we see around us, and even smaller, you know, in a small way, really grief at the fact that you you just missed your subway train or grief at the fact that that you got up at five in the morning and you realized you're out of coffee i mean it it seems like i'm I'm not actually being facetious uh these, um, these small disappointments, if, if you start looking at them really closely, you'll find that they're connected to bigger disappointments. You know, if you start pulling on that little thread, the whole tapestry is, is attached. And so that's a, it's actually a good way to, to work on this, you know, because we all will experience significant loss at some point, the loss of our life, if nothing else. It's good to be prepared. And one way to be prepared is to, to really practice the smaller griefs, they're more manageable. And so also, you know, if we look around, we may see people who have experienced tremendous grief and loss, and we see people who may not have, or at least not yet. And both are okay. Um, you know, can it, it, grief can seem like such an individual, private experience, but in one sense it is, but it, at the same time it's universal, of course. And some of the early Buddhist teachings speak of the, the great mass of suffering. You know, I think of this as this, uh, this big ball of cold, pulsating slime that we have to deal with and we don't want to. I found one, one very useful tool for working on With Grief is the, uh, some of the Tibet, Tibetan teachings of, of the bardo. So the bardo is, is usually understand, understood to mean the period between death and rebirth in this traditional Buddhist understanding. It's probably familiar with people, if you're familiar with it, from the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or as it's the Book of Na- Natural Liberation Through Understanding in the bardo is actual, the actual title of it. In the Zen tradition, we don't talk a lot about rebirth. I, I think it's there. It's more in the background. And, and I, I realize some people have a real resistance to this, uh, this idea of rebirth, and that's fine. Um, actually, I, I, I hated it for many years. Um, I would just kind of tune it out. But I don't know what happened. I guess just um, after sitting lots of zazen, it just it makes more and more sense to me personally. In any case, the, the actual meaning, the literal meaning of bardo is intermediate state or in-between state. So you, you can think of it as any real really experience of, of change or transition. In the traditional teachings, this life is, is treated as a bardo, this from birth to death, as is the dream state. Um, meditation is also considered a bardo state. And then there's three bardos, uh, there's the bardo of painful bardo of dying, the luminous bardo of dharmata, and the bardo of becoming when we begin to take rebirth in a new shape. But we can think of this again as the smaller bardos of everyday life. Um, if you think of, uh, well, if you look closely at your own experience, you'll you'll see, you know, that there's little gaps all that happen all the time in your everyday experience. So you know one example just just riding the subway commuting to work you know you're not at home and you're not at work you're somewhere in between or say you're at a social event and you're chatting to people and there's a lull in the conversation and there's that perhaps uncomfortable silence it's it's kind of a bardo state I mean, for me, one that was really uh, powerful was the going up to Session, the, the week-long meditation intensive that we do at the monastery, on the bus. It would be really, I would experience tremendous anxiety and, and a little bit of excitement, too. Um, but it was difficult. It was actually much more difficult for me than actually being in Session. Or the bardo of when the bell rings and we're going to get up and we haven't yet started kinhen. There's a a period there if you pay attention, you know, and there's no structure. So what do you do? Where does the mind go during that? You know, it's interesting. Or even, you know, the gap between one thought and the next, if you want to really zero in on it. Or the gap between no thought and a thought. You know, what's happening there? This, this is actually, I think, what beginning instruction is pointing at. We say, see the thought, let it go, and return to the counting. Between that, seeing the thought and letting it go and returning, what, what's happening there? You know, in a sense, the, the counting is just a crutch to help us, to, to sort of nudge us to the gaps. I, you know, you, it's, it's kind of ridiculous because you can't hold it up or point it out. It's not a thing. And we have this subtle tendency to want to impose some sort of structure or meaning or something that we know on these sort of gaps, these fluid in-between states, these uh, these bardo experiences. Uh, someone, I think it was, Shugen, was using the w- Roshi was using the word thingify, which is a nice way of putting it. and 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 when we start to notice these gaps in my experience these can be very when you're experiencing something very difficult these gaps can be it can be a real blessing because difficult mind states you know anger sorrow grief whatever it is it can feel so so permanent so solid so immovable which is sometimes the, the worst part of it, when it seems like this is going to last forever. You know, we know what the future is going to look like, we know what the past looked like, and I'm here somewhere in the middle, and this is the way things are going to unfold forever. But if you look closely, there are gaps. Um, you know, They may be fleeting, but they're there. And if you really get close to the gaps, within the gaps, there's no, there's no past and there's no future. There's no time, it doesn't exist there. And so it's spoken of as these gaps are an opportunity to see the nature of mind. In our tradition, we speak of, um, there's a a verse that the liturgist recites during a, a funeral service. It goes, vast ocean of dazzling light, marked by the waves of life and death. The tranquil passage of great calm embodies the form of new and old coming and going. We devoutly aspire to true compassion. That tranquil passage of great calm is the bardo, the, the transition. Here, it's literally the transition at death. You know, that, the, the phrasing always gets to me is it tranquil, great calm? But yeah, on some level it is. It's terrible and calm at the same time marked by the waves of life and death. Dino Roshi, who was the founder of our order, um, who died uh, 12 years ago, he was a photographer, and he, um, because of that, he, he uh, explicitly incorporated the practice of art into the training here. And so he would also often lead uh, photography retreats. Um, And and the interesting thing about art, I think, this is my experience, I don't know, maybe other people have this as well, is that you have an idea of something, but you never hit exactly what you aim for. And that can be a good thing, actually. Um, But Dido used to say, if you set out with an idea of the image that you want to photograph, one of two things will happen. You'll either succeed or you won't. But you know, to actually get the the surprise, the delight of the, the unforeseen, unimaginable transformation of mind only happens when we let go of the agenda, and let go of what we know. And to do that you have to you have to take a jump, basically. You have to let yourself be in free fall. And in that, once you start falling, you know, it's 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 not easy. Um when we do this in life in particular. But in that free fall, you know, it's like there's only one course of action left. It's that line in the verse, we devoutly aspire to true compassion. Do we succeed? Who knows? (laughs) We just aspire. So I wanna uh, uh, bring this, uh, wrap this up a bit with a um, there's a poem that I really love by uh, Ryokan. Who was a uh, he was a Zen priest and a um, and a poet. He he lived in Japan in um, late 18th and early 19th century. He was a real eccentric. He uh, he finished his training and then lived as a hermit for the rest of his life um, and would play with the the neighborhood kids um, and beg for his food. So this is uh, the beginning of just the first stanza of a a poem that he wrote called Reading the Record of Ehe Dogen. So Dogen is the the 13th century master that I mentioned earlier, the founder of this lineage. And he left behind extensive, brilliant writings. But one of the collections is the the Ehe Kuroku, the the record of his teachings in in the Dharma Hall. So the poem goes, on a somber spring evening, around midnight, rain mixed with snow sprinkled on the bamboos in the garden. I wanted to ease my loneliness, but it was quite impossible. My hand reached behind me for the record of Ehe Dogen. Beneath the open window at my desk, I offered incense, lit a lamp, and quietly read, Body and mind dropping away is simply the upright truth. In a thousand postures, 10,000 forms, a dragon toys with the jewel. His understanding beyond conditioned patterns clears up the current corruptions. The ancient great master's style reflects the image of India. Body and mind dropping away is simply the upright truth a thousand postures, 10,000 forms, a dragon toys with the jewel. <laughs> There's not much more to say than that. There's not much more to add. It's like saying um, when the rain falls, the ground gets wet. The dragon of awakened mind plays joyfully with the entire universe of the 10 directions. When the Buddha was asked what he taught, he said, I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. These two are non-dual. It sounds like two things, but it's one thing. There is such thing as the cessation of suffering, but in order to get there, we need to be completely open, completely exposed to the, the suffering of all of life and not just strip away our sort of obsessive, everyday defenses, but to take off skin, flesh, bones and marrow until there's absolutely nothing left. It's completely shattering, but it's the way in. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.